Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. Father, again, we're always excited when we get into the Word because we know that we're going to meet with you and you will meet with us. So we come like little children, open, with our hearts ready to respond to you. Lord, we want to respond to you in obedience. We want to learn from you. We want to learn your ways because we know your ways are higher than our ways. We want to be changed and transformed as we look into your face, deep into your heart. Teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and I've titled it The Worthy Walk. Let's read our text together. It's there in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, employ you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called to one hope of calling, and one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. You know, Paul reminds us he's a prisoner. He's not a prisoner necessarily of Rome, but he's a prisoner of the Lord. In fact, Paul became a prisoner on that road to Damascus, his conversion experience. But one thing I notice about Paul, he never sought to be free from that divine imprisonment. Let me read Second Timothy to you. Chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. He says, I, Paul, appointed a preacher, apostle, a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I believed. I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until this day. Can't you just hear Paul as he goes around his rented house, clank, clank, clank. You hear the sound of the chains. Yes, he's a prisoner, but he's free. He's praying. He's preaching. He's praising. And many of Nero's house and Roman guard are getting saved. Paul was praying. He's praying for the saints in Jerusalem and Antioch and Philippi and Ephesus and Rome. He prayed for Caesar and the Senate and the Roman people, the world. And the soldier who shared his cell, oh, he had a captive audience. Then the gospel was going out all over the city and everyone was talking about this joyful man in chains who had the message of hope. See, he was a prisoner, but he was shut up with a pen and prayers. So he praised the Lord. He wrote the letters. He interceded at the throne. Look with me at Acts twenty-eight twenty. 
For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and speak to you, for I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. It reminds us why he's in prison. One, he's a a prisoner of, of Jesus, but he had a hope for Israel. He had a call and he was a missionary to the Gentiles. And he was willing to die for his faith. He was willing to give up his salvation if necessary to see his brethren come into the kingdom. Such love. That's the love of God. God pours his love into Paul's heart as he pours his love into your heart and my heart. And the difference is we will either feed that love, pour that love out, or we'll quench the spirit and we'll become the most unloving people. Now we know what love is. Paul had this ability to see things always from God's perspective. He saw how it affected Christ, and that was his motivation to press on. Verse 1, let's look back at it again. Notice that word, employ. Paul made no apology for his pleading with the people to do what he knew was right. He says, I employ you. Another translation uses the word beg. See, that word parakaleo is a verb occurring around a hundred times with a dual meaning. It, in some cases, can mean to comfort or to plead with or beg. Now, Paul's not suggesting. Paul's pleading. Pleading with them to walk the worthy of their calling. The Holy God has called them to himself. He's given them purpose and reason to live. See, Paul couldn't rest until all of those who were entrusted to his spiritual care walked in a manner worthy of their calling, with which they had been called. The Bible is very clear. We are to exhort one another to guard themselves against unbelief and sin. That's our responsibility. It's not just the pastor's responsibility, but for every believer to lovingly employ and plead with others to respond in obedience to the gospel. The word walk is frequently used in the New Testament. It describes a person's lifestyle. In chapters 5 and 6, as we move there, Paul will stress the importance of that walk, a walk that is morally pure, a walk of wisdom, a walk under the control of the Spirit, and that walk that is honoring our family and God at the same time. We also need a, a spiritual warfare in that Christian walk. He's going to teach us each one of those little elements. Look with me at Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We see that same phrase. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice the the fruit of walking worthy of the Lord. We will be bearing fruit. That's what it's going to look like. Bearing fruit in every good work because God has prepared good works for us before the foundation of the world. 
First Thessalonians picks up that same thought. Chapter 2, verse 12. So that you would walk in a matter worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Don't forget Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, apostle, high priest of our confession. Now, Jesus was the high priest. He was the apostle. He was sent by the Father, and the way that he walked would bring glory to God and fulfill God's purpose. Now, this invitation is given outwardly by the the preaching of the gospel. That's what we do. We, We proclaim the gospel. You don't need to be evangelists. You just need to love God and love the lost. So outwardly, we preach the gospel. That's our part. But you know, inwardly, there's that work of the Holy Spirit. As you and I proclaim Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified, the Holy Spirit is working in the life of that person or persons that we're sharing the faith with. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 14 on the screen. How then will they call upon him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Again, every one of us are called to proclaim that gospel. Romans 8.30 says this, And these whom he predestined, he called, and these whom he called, he justified, and these whom he justified, he glorified. See, God has called us, well, he's predestined and then called us and justified. That's our position, and he's also glorified. This is a done deal. God's begun the work. God will finish the work in you. Our part is simply to submit and walk worthy of that calling because God disciplines those he's loved, and if we do not yield, then God's going to bring us that point of discipline that he will finish the work in you and me. But the fact is, we need him. Let me show you John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent him draws him, and I will raise him up in that last day. See, we need that work of the Holy Spirit. We're partnering with that Holy Spirit. We go through this life walking in the Spirit, dependent upon the Spirit. Apart from him, we can do nothing, nothing of any value. Nothing that would bring glory to God apart from him. But what are those characteristics of a worthy walk? Look at verse 2. It says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience and showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. Let's take the word humility. The characteristics of humility are are important to understand. One, humility is really the foundation for all these other things that we're going to go through. If we are to grow in him, humility is the foundation that everything else is built upon. There's a progression from humility, and one characteristic leads to another. Philippians 2.3 kind of explains a little bit 
Do nothing from selfish, empty conceit, but in humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. See, the humble person regards others more important than himself. He's not thinking about himself, not calling attention to himself. In fact, he's concerned for those around him. He's concerned for his wife. He's concerned for his kids. He's concerned for his neighbors, his boss. He's concerned for his city, the state, the country. Because if they do not know Jesus Christ, they will be lost for eternity. Look with me at Matthew 18. We'll look at verses 3 and 4. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's important to think about it. Unless I be converted or born again, unless I become like a child who wants to believe, that's innocent, that's not looking for fault, but looking for truth, who wants to understand, that's when I become humble, when I have a teachable spirit. Now, Whoever humbles himself as a child, he's the greatest of the kingdom. Notice the way up is the way down. When I begin to esteem others higher than myself, I'm on the right track. Look with me at Micah 6, 8. In the Old Testament, again, the Lord was teaching the same principle. He has told you, old man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? Three things again. To do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. That's our walk. Philippians 2.3, look at that again. Do nothing of selfish, empty conceit. But in humility mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. See how humility works? I want to honor God. I want to walk with God. And when I do, I walk in justice and I love kindness and others are esteemed higher than ourselves. But in a practical way, what does it look like if I saw a person around? What do I see in maybe church history? Well, in history, we find that during the days of slavery in the West Indies, there were some Christians that found it impossible to witness to the slaves because they're almost totally separated from them in the ruling class. Many of whom felt beneath them even to speak to a slave. Two young missionaries, though, however, we determined to reach those oppressed people at any cost. In order to fulfill God's calling, they joined the slaves. They worked, lived beside the slaves, becoming totally identified with them, sharing their overwork, their beatings, their abuse. It's not strange that the two missionaries soon won the hearts of those slaves, and many of whom accepted for themselves the God who could move men with such loving selflessness. 
Philippians chapter 2 again, verses 7 and 8 this time. But he, referring, he emptied himself, taking the form of bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by being obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The standard is Jesus. Jesus goes before you and shows us what it looks like. See, pride, self-promoting arrogance, it always sows disunity. But a humble, gentle man or woman, oh, it's like a refreshing breeze. The world may exalt pride, but they do not exalt humility. In fact, they mock it. For the most part, humility has been looked at on as, as a weakness, an impotence, and often despised, sadly. Humility begins with the proper self-awareness. Humility causes us to really to take off the rose-colored glasses and allow us to see ourselves as we really are. 2 Corinthians 3.5 says this, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Next, humility involves Christ awareness. Look at 1 John 2.6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner he walked. Being aware of him and walking as he walks. Thirdly, we see humility involves God-awareness. Perhaps you remember the story in Isaiah chapter 6. Let me read some verses to you. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lawfully exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Verse 3, it says, And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Those are the angels that he saw. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. In verse 5, it goes on, And then I said, Woe to me, for I am a man ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. At that moment, I believe Isaiah saw the sinfulness of sin and he saw his own sinfulness and a need to be cleansed. Only God can cleanse you and cleanse me. Peter had a glimpse too when he saw Jesus in Luke 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, referring to Jesus, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me. I am a sinful man. If you've seen Jesus... And you've seen him in all of his holiness. You are very aware of your unworthiness, your sinfulness. And yet, we can know his love. We can know his mercy. We can know his forgiveness. Think again of Luke 18. There's the tax collector. He's standing some distance away. 
and when even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but he was beating his breast saying, God have merciful, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. That was the the Pharisee who was so sure of himself. We must remember our sinfulness and our nature is bent towards sin, but yet God in his sacrifice has paid the price. He chooses to see us just as we never sinned and we can boldly come to that throne of grace. As long as we see him sitting on the throne, then humility will follow. And when humility follows, it always produces gentleness and meekness. And meekness is the surest sign of true humility. You cannot possess meekness without humility. You cannot possess meekness with pride. Because pride and humility are mutually exclusive. So are pride and meekness and gentleness. Gentleness refers to that mild-spirited and self-controlled. The exact opposite of vindictiveness and vengeance. That thought alone convicts me. Again, the scripture makes it very clear. My heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who could know it. But God's changing that heart day by day by day. And we run up to him and we cry out for mercy and he lavishes with mercy and grace. You know what happens next? I think we see a glimpse of it in Matthew 5, 5. Again, the Beatitudes are saying in this case, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. When I truly have come to know and see the Lord Jesus Christ and all his holiness and purity, then I become gentle. Who am I to be arrogant? Who am I to look down on anyone else? See, gentleness is also one of the fruits of the Spirit. The evidence that that you're walking in that spirit, you're walking worthy of the calling that you have been given. And, And that idea of gentleness should characterize every single child. In fact, you find it again in Colossians 3.12. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on that heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. See, that meaning of gentleness has nothing to do with weakness or timidity or indifference or cowardness. The words used of wild animals who are tame, especially that of horses after they've been broken and trained. And those animals, they still have their strength, they still have a spirit, but they have a will that's under the control of the master. In fact, when we think about it, this this word meekness is power under control. Biblical meekness or gentleness is power under control. David displayed that meekness when he refused to kill King Saul in the cave at En Gedi 
every opportunity. But he was merciful. He was going to let the Lord deal with him. He knew that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and he was going to step back. He was not going to touch, in that case, God's anointed. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger. It's okay to be angry. May it be a holy anger at the sin, but really committing it to God. First Peter, I like this. Chapter 2, verse 23, while being reviled, it's a picture of Jesus. He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He went willingly to the cross for you and me. He entrusted himself to the Father. And that's our example, that we entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that will not satisfy the flesh, but the Spirit finds great peace. When the meek person becomes angry, his anger is really controlled. It's very carefully directed. It's not careless. Proverbs 16.32 says this, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The meek person responds willingly to the word of God. No matter what those consequences or requirements are, he humbly is receiving the implanted word of God. Again, this meek person is often seen as a, a peacemaker who he is always ready to forgive and help restore a sinning brother. Well, the next characteristic that you see is in verse 2, is patience. See, the third attitude that characterizes this Christian worthy walk is patience. And it also out grows or outgrowth of humility and gentleness. See, patience literally means to be long-tempered. It's often translated long-suffering. The patient person endures negative circumstances and he just doesn't give in. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, it says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Abraham received the promise of God, but he had to wait many years to see that fulfillment. God's timing is so often different than ours. But Hebrews tells us about him, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15, and so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Patiently waited. Do you struggle 
with patients like me sometimes. I can be outwardly patient, but inside, oh, there's a struggle. That reminds us there's this struggle, the battle going on in your life until the day the Lord takes us out of here. We have challenges. We have choices. And there's always consequences for those choices. They can be good or bad depending on those choices, how we respond to that challenge. Well, think again. There's also Noah. God told him to build a ship in the wilderness, far from any body of water. And before there was any even any rain on the earth. And for 120 years, he worked on this task while preaching to his neighbors of God's coming judgment. Wow. When God calls you and me to the task, God will give you the sufficient grace that you need. Let me give you an illustration. When H.M. Stanley went to Africa in 1871 to find and report on David Livingston, he spent several months in a missionary company, carefully observing the man and his work. Livingston never spoke to Stanley about his spiritual matters, but Livingston lovingly patient compassion for the African people was beyond Stanley's even comprehension. He could not understand how this missionary could have such love for and patience with such backward pagan people among whom he had so long ministered. Livingston literally spent himself in untiring service for those whom he had no reason to love except for Christ's sake. Stanley wrote in his journal, When I saw the unwearied patience, the unflagging zeal, and those enlightened sons of Africa, I became a Christian at his side, though he never spoke to me one word. This is when you see the gospel working out of life. People come to me, let me, they tell me, I've got some new thought, new news, new something I found in the Bible no one else knows. And I say, let me see it work in your life. See, the gospel works in our life. It changes us and transforms us. It humbles us. It makes us meek and gentle. It teaches us patience. We're not the same person. And I thank God for that. The patient saint accepts God's plan for everything <laughs> without questioning and grumbling. Is that you? Is that me? But you know what? God is working in you and God's working in me. He's changing us. He's transforming us. He's began that work. He'll finish that work. And I'm so thankful for that. The next characteristics we also see in verse 2 is really the showing of tolerance or forbearing love. It's the fourth characteristic of the Christian walk. It is showing tolerance for one another in love. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, Love covers a multitude of sins. 
Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but again, love covers all transgressions. What love does is it throws a blanket over the sins of others. Not to justify, not to excuse, not to condone, but to keep those sins from becoming any more known than necessary. That person's willing even to sacrifice themselves. He doesn't gossip. He doesn't talk about it. He covers it up, prays and looks for the opportunity to come alongside that person just to encourage him, build him up. And that's what we're called to do. That forbearing love takes abuse from others while continuing to love them. The forbearing love could only be what we call agape love. Because only agape love gives continuously and unconditionally. It's in 1 Corinthians. The first time I read it, it really kind of bothered me. It, and it was saying, you know, there were two brothers that were fighting, they were arguing, they were going to court. And the scripture made it very clear. Why not be wronged for the sake of the gospel? Why not turn the other cheek? Why is it I have to get even? What God calls you and me to is love and to pray and trust him that he'll work out the details. Trust him that all things work for the good, for those that love the Lord and called according to his purpose. And we don't need to take things into our own hands. Well, again, the next thing we see is in verse 3. It's unity. The ultimate outcome of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance is being diligent to preserve the unity of the saints in the bond of peace. That word, diligent, basically means to make haste. And from that comes the meaning of zeal and, and, and diligence. Paul writing to Timothy, notice what he did in chapter 2 of Second Timothy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but accurately handling the word of truth. The perseverance of the unity of the Spirit is, is in the bond of peace. And it should be diligent. It should be a constant concern of every believer. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. Notice again. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, we're all made to drink one spirit. And then in John 17, verse 11, I'm no longer in this world, yet they themselves are in the world. And I've come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, in that name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. See, that's what God wants to work into you, the oneness that he had with Jesus. The unity. Now, the church responsibility uh, through the lives of individual believers is, is really to preserve the unity 
by faithfully walking in a manner worthy of God's calling. It doesn't condone or prove sin, but it doesn't broadcast sin. It deals with the doctrine. It deals with the air in a loving, tender way. It always speaks the love and truth. But it doesn't destroy people. Philippians 1.27 says this, Only conduct yourselves in a matter worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come or see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are to be one in Christ. And those around us, why they may fall short of, of your, what you think the standard should be. The standard is Jesus. And when I begin to judge someone else, I have fallen short. We are one. That's my brother. That's my sister. I love them. And I should always want the best for them. The bond that preserves this unity is peace. It is a spiritual belt that surrounds and binds them and God's holy people together. Philippians 2, verse 2 this time. Make my joy complete by being the same mind, notice, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. When we keep our eyes upon Jesus, on being the people, he would have us be, all the pieces come together. Colossians 3.14 says, beyond all these things, put on love, that perfect bond of unity. See, when I'm walking, as Jesus walked, I'm walking in love, and that is the perfect bond of unity. So, humility gives birth to gentleness. Gentleness gives birth to patience. Patience gives birth to forbearing love. And all four of these characteristics preserve unity of the Spirit and a bond of peace. Well, the cause of this worthy wall is really the unity of the Spirit. Look at verse 4. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you also were called to the hope of calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Everything that relates to salvation, the church, the kingdom of God, it's all based upon the concept of unity as reflected in Paul's use of the, the seven ones that we see in these three verses. The cause or the basis, the outward oneness, the inner oneness, the practical oneness is based upon a spiritual oneness. Again, in verse 4, Notice again the unity of the Spirit. There's one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called to one hope of your calling. So there's one body of believers, there's one church, which is composed of every saint who has ever trusted and will trust Jesus Christ. There's no denominational, geographic, ethnic body differences. No, we're one. 
So there's no Gentile, Jewish, male, female, slave, or free man. There's only one. It's Christ's body. That's you and me. Every believer from the very beginning of time, through time, to the end of time. And the unity of the body is in the heart of the book of Ephesians. That's what it's about. Can you imagine if every Christian walked in obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit? There would be perfect harmony. First John 3.2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, as it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we see him just as he is. And that's unity in the Son. Notice again, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's in verse 5 in our text. Well, in Acts 4.12, it says this, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven than that has been given among men by which must be saved. Those who, by one Lord, are in one faith will testify to the unity of the one baptism. Verse 6, there's a unity in the Father. Notice there's one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Our one God and Father, along with the Son and the Holy Spirit, is over all, through all, in all of every believer. Father, we thank you we thank you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for calling us, working in us, saving us, not only from ourselves, but really to you. We thank you one day, Lord Jesus, you're coming back for your bride, and we will be with you forever. Come now, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.